You're listening to the Crime Valley Podcast, a place where we search for the missing, remember the forgotten, and shine a light on the wrongfully convicted. everybody and welcome to the Crime Valley Podcast. I am your host Amber and today I will be covering the murder of Donna Denise Haraway and the subsequent convictions of Thomas Jesse Ward and Carl Allen Fontenot. There is a lot of information to cover in this case and parts two and parts three of this series will be released within the next week. And without further ado, let's get started. This episode contains themes of murder, sexual assault, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Dreams. We all have them. They creep into our sleep like thieves in the night, extracting from our slumbering minds hopes and fears, wants and needs, false realities and actualities. When our dreams are fulfilling our desires, we attempt to stay in the dream, to have just a few more moments of slumber. Upon awakening, we cling to the loose silvery threads, trying to weave them back together as quickly as they are unravelling. When our dreams turn into terrors, we awaken abruptly, heart beating wildly, our skin in a cold sweat. Our minds try desperately to catch up with our bodies so that we can be reassured that it's not real. It was just a nightmare, awful and frightening, but a dream all the same. Dreams. They are bright and dark, real and surreal, clear and murky, but all of them are still dreams nonetheless. A dream is a dream is a dream. Unless, of course, in the 1980s, you happen to live in the town of Ada, Oklahoma. It all began in 1983, the year before the dream. Perhaps not officially, but to some people, it was the beginning. In the small Oklahoman town of Seminole, something frightening had just happened to an 18-year-old woman named Patricia Arlene Hamilton. Something frightening that would be replicated 12 months later, when a 24-year-old convenience store worker named Donna Denise Haraway would disappear from the nearby town of Ada. Two women would effectively vanish from their places of work, 33 miles and one year apart, leaving behind unmanned service stations, their handbags, their cars, and very few clues. What happened to Patty and Denise may well have been two isolated incidents, or even the work of a copycat, but the similarities between the two cases are striking. And after Denise vanished in April of 1984, her disappearance must have rang more than a few alarm bells for those familiar with the goings-on in the town of Seminole the year before. Patty Hamilton was a recent high school graduate who lived out of home with her 21-year-old fiancé, Brad Newby. Brad was a student at Seminole Junior College and Patty had plans to study photography in the coming months. Patty's first priority, though, was finding a job that would cover her rent. She had only been working at the 401 West Strother Street U Totem in Seminole 
for two weeks when she worked the night shift on the evening of Friday, April 8, 1983. Although Paddy worked the shift alone, she had some long-distance company in the form of her mother, Faye. Faye Walker worked the overnight shift as a taxi dispatcher, and she and Paddy liked to keep their respective phone lines open as a safety precaution, chatting in between customers. In the early morning hours of Saturday the 9th of April, Patty and her mother were talking over the phone. At around 4.30am, Patty told Faye that she was going outside to sweep the service station driveway. Patty's mother waited on the other end for Patty to return, but she never did. Assuming that her daughter was busy, Faye Walker eventually hung up the phone and continued her shift. At just after 5am that morning, a customer entered the Utotum on Strother Street, where he found an unmanned store. Realising that something was amiss, the man called police to report this worrying find. When police arrived, they found no sign of Patty Hamilton. The last entry on the cash register was a no-sale, entered at 4.35am, 40 minutes before the concerned customer had called the police. The cash register drawer was open and empty, with $114 unaccounted for. A floor safe was also open in the store, the cash inside untouched. Two cans of soft drink were found on the counter, but they had not been rung up on the till. Paddy's keys and hairbrush were found in the store, and her car was still parked out the front of the U-totem, with her handbag locked inside. There was no sign of a struggle, and apart from the personal items left behind, it was as if Patty had never been there. Police felt that Patty had probably cooperated with her abductor, knowing that there was a silent alarm in the 24-hour store. The alarm worked by activating an alert at the local police station when the cash drawer was emptied of money. What Patty didn't know was that the phone line that was needed to ensure that the alarm worked was dead. The Bell Telephone Company had actually discovered the deadline earlier that week and repaired it. According to the alarm owner and operator, the system at the Utotum had been checked after the repair and it was working. The alarm had also been set off after a small disturbance at the store three weeks earlier and it had worked then. Unfortunately for Paddy, a phone line error meant that the alarm system was disabled that morning. As law enforcement started to investigate Paddy Hamilton's disappearance, some interesting information came to light. In her very short time at the Utotum, people who knew Patty said that she had been terrified of some of the clientele. In particular, drunk men who would come in and harass her during her overnight shifts. Patty had been caught between a rock and a hard place, needing to work to support herself, but biding her time until she found a job with better hours and conditions. It would take eight and a half years to find out that Patty was in fact dead. In October of 1991, her remains were found along a riverbank by a fisherman near Kanawa, 20 miles from the store where she was abducted. 38 years after Paddy disappeared, her murder remains unsolved. 19-year-old Melody Ann Jones and her 20-year-old husband Paul Jones were just starting out in life. The couple were newlyweds and appeared to be happy and in love. For eight months, they had been living on a rural property on Benson Park Road in the township of Earlsboro, Oklahoma. Melody was from a close-knit family and was the eldest of five siblings. She worked at the Seminole Dairy Queen, 
while her husband Paul worked at a nearby golf course. Paul had moved to the US from the UK and was known as a quiet and serious type of man. Melody, on the other hand, was outgoing and gregarious, a large personality on a woman who stood at under five feet tall. On the day of Wednesday the 4th of May, 1983, Melody went to spend the day with her parents and siblings. They were a close-knit family, and on that sunny spring day, they spent their time catching up and fishing. When the day drew to a close, Melody's younger brother Randall gave her a lift home. When they arrived at Melody and Paul's home, they said their goodbyes, and Randall watched as his sister walked to her front door. As the door opened, he saw light spill out from the home onto the front lawn. Years later, Randall Garten would reflect on that night, and he wouldn't be able to remember why he had declined his sister's offer of staying over. The next morning, Melody's mother, Carol Garten, received a call from the Seminole Dairy Queen. Melody had not shown up for her morning shift. Carol Garten drove over to Melody and Paul's rural home, certain that the couple must have slept in. When Carol arrived at the home, she pulled into the driveway and honked her car horn. When the sound of her car horn did not rouse anybody, Carol got out of the car and walked up to the front door. The door was ajar, so Carol walked into the house and towards the master bedroom. Entering the room, she was met with the sight of her son-in-law Paul, laying dead on the floor. He was dressed in shorts and an unbuttoned shirt, and an empty shotgun lay across the bed. It looked as though Paul had been shot. He had two injuries, one to his neck and one to his chest. There was no sign of malady. When police arrived, they walked into a surprisingly unchaotic scene. Apart from Paul lying on the bedroom floor, there was no sign of a struggle. Police believed that Paul may have been attempting to load his shotgun when he was killed. The two wounds that were initially thought to have been gunshot wounds turned out to be knife wounds. There were two possible scenarios. Either Melody had left of her own volition after killing her husband, or the couple had been ambushed in their home and Melody had been forcibly taken. There were three clues that supported the latter theory. The empty shotgun on the bed, the fact that Melody's handbag was found upended in the kitchen, its contents strewn over the floor, and perhaps the most telling clue was the fact that Melody's glasses were still in the home. Melody was legally blind without the thick-lensed prescription glasses that she always wore. The fact that the glasses were left behind seemed a good indication that Melody had not left her home willingly. Melody's family and work colleagues were questioned, and none of them had seen any changes in Melody. In the weeks preceding her disappearance, she had been her usual happy and bubbly self. Paul's death and Melody's disappearance made little sense to those who knew them. May 1983 was a frightening time for the locals in Seminole. People there wondered if there was a maniac going around and abducting young women. Both Paddy Hamilton and Melody Jones had been college-aged, and they had both worked in service jobs in the town of Seminole. The two women had disappeared within a month of each other. They were both in committed relationships and living with their partners. Prior to moving to the property on Benson Park Road, Melody and Paul Jones had lived only two blocks from the U-Totem on Strother Street, where Paddy would later go missing from. The crimes had occurred 12 miles apart, and people speculated that they may be linked. 
law enforcement was hesitant to draw a connection between the two missing women. Apart from geography and a few similarities, there seemed to be enough differences between the two cases to conclude that they were two separate and isolated incidents. Small towns can be funny places. The majority of young people who live in them dream of getting out of them. They count the days until they can go off into the world, usually to bigger cities where excitement beckons. They want to get away from the same old boring routine, the lack of entertainment, and perhaps the eyes of those who judge them. Moving away is their chance to shed other people's expectations, to become the person that they dream of being, and to wake up each day with new and exciting possibilities. At least, that is the plan. A lot of kids do escape, their presence replaced by the next group of youth champing at the bit to leave. Not everyone gets out, though. Some people are tied to their town by family, work, and often a lack of education. Some youth undoubtedly want to stay, but others have their hands forced. Often, as we grow older, our perception shifts. That place that we couldn't wait to leave suddenly becomes a lot more attractive. Maybe the big city wasn't the utopia we expected it to be. Perhaps our families are there. Maybe we have discovered the rose-coloured glasses of nostalgia. Or perhaps we are looking for a safe and familiar place to raise our own children. In 1984, Ada, Oklahoma was a rural Bible Belt town with its fair share of young people. 15,000 plus residents strong and full of churches and rural industry. A lot of under-25s would drift in and out of the town. Ada was small enough for people to know you by reputation, but big enough for most of those people to not really know you. For the haves and those who managed to always present a positive and genteel facade to society, the town was idyllic. Conversely, for the downtrodden, the poor, and those who had made public indiscretions, a down-in-the-boondocks divide was obvious. Unlike big cities where you can reinvent yourself and be anonymous, smaller cities like Ada don't forget. They remember where you came from, who your family are, and what kind of trouble you have been in. The flip side of this is that places like Ada do know the who's who. They are aware of all the characters in town, even if it is only by reputation. There are always a bunch of people who have community spirit, the type of people who band together and help others in their time of need. When injustices occur in the aiders of the world, people start to talk, they start to draw their own conclusions, and begin to question the powers that be. Donna Denise Lyon was born on the 19th of August 1959 in the town of Holdenville, Oklahoma, to her parents Jimmy and Patricia Lyon. A middle child, she grew up with a big brother Ron and her little sister Janet. Preferring to go by her middle name Denise rather than Donna, she was quiet and gentle, always well-liked and introspective. Denise graduated from Purcell High School in 1977 and then went on to attend Oklahoma State University. Denise had enrolled at the college for a semester before withdrawing. Despite having a job and working while studying, money was tight and, like a lot of people do, she moved back home to save money. Denise was not scared of hard work, and throughout high school, she had worked at the Dairy Queen that her mother managed. When her family moved to the town of Ada, 
Denise went with them. Again, she worked at the same place as her mother, who was now managing a convenience store called Love's. When their family moved away from Ada, Denise and her sister Janet stayed behind. Denise was attending Ada's East Central College, where she was studying to become a teacher. The two sisters found an apartment to rent above a dental clinic on 14th and Rennie Streets. The apartment belonged to a well-respected dentist and prominent member of Ada Society named Dr Jack Haraway. His son, Steve Haraway, lived in the apartment across from Denise. The two would meet when Denise and Janet were moving in, and the rest was history. Denise and Steve began dating and would eventually marry in August of 1983. The couple now lived in the apartment once occupied by Denise and her sister. They were working their way through college and had plans to move to a big city once they had both graduated. By 1983, Denise needed a job with flexibility, which would fit in with her upcoming teaching placements. On the 19th of May 1983, Denise started working at a local convenience store. McAnally's was a group of convenience stores owned by O.E. McAnally. He had stores in Coyle, Perkins, Edmund, Perry and Ada. There were three McAnally's in the town of Ada in 1983. They consisted of the store that Denise worked at on East Arlington, another on North Broadway, and the third store was in the downtown area. In 1984, Denise started her student teaching placements at Hayes Elementary School. Denise's schedule at McAnally's was mid-afternoon until 11pm, Thursday through to Sunday. Thursdays and Fridays in particular would become busy days for Denise. She would spend the day teaching a class at the elementary school, before quickly changing clothes and driving to work. Her husband Steve was also a senior in college and would be graduating in May. Denise would be graduating just a few months after Steve. Denise was a well-liked and trusted employee, and the McAnellys were happy to have her working for them. Denise was not as content with her job as her employers were of her. She had taken the position at McAnellys out of necessity so that she could pay her way through college. The schedule at McAnellys fit with Denise's college requirements, which included her teaching placements. Her husband Steve worked at a similar job at the Wee Packham convenience store located in another part of town. Some days the two of them must have been like ships passing in the night as they hurried to get through their busy schedules. On the afternoon of Saturday, April the 28th, 1984, Denise started her shift as usual. Somewhere between 6.30 and 7pm, Denise spoke on the phone with her sister Janet. Janet was working at a convenience store in the Shawnee area, close to an hour's drive from Ada. When the two sisters had to cut their conversation short due to customers arriving, they made plans for Janet to call Denise later that night. Denise was studying in between customers, and at around 7.30pm she called her husband Steve to ask him to look up a definition for her. Civil twilight in Ada ended at 7.36pm that night. By the time Gene Walshall and his nephews Lenny and David Timmons arrived at McAnally's, it was just after 8.30pm and well and truly dark. The men arrived in two separate vehicles, Gene in his pickup truck and 17-year-old David and his 24-year-old brother Lenny in another vehicle. They had a poker night planned and had come to McAnally's to get change for their games. 
Lenny Timmons got out of his vehicle and approached McAnally's double doors. As he was about to walk into the store, a young couple walked out. The man had his arm around the woman's waist and she walked slightly ahead of him. Lenny Timmons passed them and entered the store. He approached the counter, but no attendant was waiting to serve him. At some point, he lost patience and decided to alert the missing clerk to his presence in the store. Walking to the front door, he opened and closed it to set off the buzzer. After doing this multiple times and with no sudden appearance of the missing attendant, Lenny went outside to tell his brother and uncle. The three men then entered the store together. They looked around and checked the bathroom and the cool room, but there was clearly nobody in the store. Looking over the top of the counter, Gene Walshaw noticed a handbag. He also saw that the cash register was open and empty of money. There was a lit cigarette resting in an ashtray and an opened can of beer on the counter. This discovery prompted Gene to call the store manager and the police. When police dispatch received the call from Gene Walshall, they heard him mention a highway and immediately assumed that the McAnellys in question was the store located at North Broadway. Sergeant Phillips took off in his patrol car, his destination, the McAnellys on North Broadway. Nobody knew it at the time, but this mistake was one of many that would taint this case for decades to come. Back at dispatch, Officer Kyle Gibbs realised that he may have directed Sergeant Phillips to the wrong store. He called the store on North Broadway, and after ascertaining that there had been no robbery there, he alerted Sergeant Phillips to the error. This mix-up caused a 10-minute delay. When Sergeant Phillips arrived, he spoke to Gene Walshall and the Timmons brothers. They pointed out the empty and open register and described the old model pickup they had seen leaving with a man and woman inside. The men told Sergeant Phillips that when the pickup had left McAnally's, it had turned right. This would have taken the truck in an easterly direction and away from town. Sergeant Phillips radioed in a description of the truck to police dispatch. As Gene Walshall and the Timmons brothers had done before him, Sergeant Phillips searched the store for the missing clerk. He had noted the 1969 Pontiac Sunbird parked outside the store, and now as he looked behind the store's counter, he saw the teaching textbooks and the brown handbag. Retrieving a wallet from inside the bag, Sergeant Phillips now had in his hand the driver's licence of Donna Denise Haraway. Gene Walshall saw the driver's licence photo, and he realised that the woman he had seen walking out of McAnally's was the same person in that picture. Gene had seen Denise before when he had stopped at McAnally's to make purchases. He had not put two and two together until that moment. Gene had been in his truck smoking a cigarette while he waited for his nephew. He had watched the man and the woman pass Lenny. To Gene, they appeared to be a couple of young lovers. He had watched them walk to the pickup, watched the man as he had opened the passenger side door, letting the woman climb in first. David Timmons had seen the couple too. He noticed the man's arm around the woman's waist. He had seen the truck turn right and head away from town. Neither Lenny, David or Jean had noticed anything wrong with the woman. Nothing about the couple had raised their hackles. Now that he had identified the missing clerk, Sergeant Phillips again issued an announcement over the radio. This time he was giving Denise Haraway's description. Donna Denise Haraway, 5 feet 5, 110 pounds, brown eyes and dark blonde hair. 
During this time, Munro Ackerson, the store manager, had arrived. Jean had called him at the same time that he put through the call to the police. Munro was asked to check the register tape and to count up the remaining money in the till. When he tallied the register tape, Munro estimated that the amount of money missing from the register was $167. The final item rang up on the register tape was for 75 cents. Munro thought that it might have been for the tall boy branded beer left sitting on the counter. There was $500 found in the floor safe and another $400 underneath the counter. $150 was also discovered underneath the cash drawer. There was no mention of a no sale. Despite the growing police presence at McAnally's, nobody thought to let only the necessary people access the scene. Although the store was closed two hours early that night, nothing was done to preserve potential evidence. Munro Atkinson threw the can of beer and the cigarette into the rubbish bin. Not one member of law enforcement at the scene that night told him not to. When Detective Baskins from the Ada Police Department arrived, he called his captain, Dennis Smith, who was at home in bed. Detective Smith told him to treat the store as a crime scene. Despite this advice, nobody dusted for fingerprints. The front door, the register, the counter, the ashtray, the beer can, the fridge door where the beer had been taken from, the branding of the cigarette, none of it was checked. Somebody had even used the register to ring up a purchase for Jean Walshall, although who that someone was remains a mystery. When Steve Haraway was notified of his wife's disappearance, he drove to the store and was able to identify Denise's belongings. When it came to what Denise was wearing that night, Steve Haraway was uncertain. By the time that he had returned home from his shift, Denise had well and truly left for work. Steve knew that Denise always wore tennis shoes and blue jeans to work. She would always wear a blouse and would have on hand a grey zip-up hooded sweatshirt for when she had to stock the drinks in the cooler. After giving police the information that he was able to, Steve Haraway went home, hoping that his wife would try to call him. As soon as Denise Haraway's family were notified of her disappearance, they drove straight to Ada. If you were leaving Ada and heading into more rural areas, you would first pass McAnally's on your right and half a minute later, JP's Wee Packham convenience store on your left. Within an hour of Denise Haraway's disappearance, law enforcement across the county had fanned out to search for her and the mystery pickup truck. One police officer stopped at JP's and asked the female clerk if she had seen anything suspicious. Like Denise, 25-year-old Karen Wise was working the 3 to 11pm shift on April the 28th. She had worked at the store for less than a month and was still finding her way. Karen told the officer something unusual had happened at her store. Two men had come into JP's at around 7pm. They played pool in the back section of the store and kept looking over at Karen. When one of the men came to the counter to get change for the pool table, he made Karen feel very uncomfortable. It must have been a relief for her when a friendly and familiar face came into JP's at around 8pm. Jack Pascal was a friend of the owners and he would often come in at night and chat to the staff, even working behind the counter when the staff needed help. Karen told Jack how uneasy the two men were making her feel and Jack stayed in the store until the two men had left. 
They had only stayed for half an hour after Jack's arrival, before leaving the store at 8.30pm. When police later spoke to Jack Paschal, he said that as the two men left, they got into an older, primed Chevrolet pickup. The truck had something wrong with its tailgate, or it may have even been missing a tailgate. Jack said that they then headed west, which would take them back into town, but not before they drove past McAnally's. Karen Wise's description of the two men was that the first was 22 to 24 years old, 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10, with blonde hair, the length of which was below his ears. He had a light complexion and was said to be wearing faded jeans with a white t-shirt and tennis shoes. The other suspect was in the same age range, with shoulder-length light brown hair and a slim build. He was wearing a blue t-shirt, faded jeans and tennis shoes and his height was somewhere in the range of 6 foot to 6 foot 2. Karen Wise probably didn't know it then, but she had just given police a description of the suspects that the Ada Police Department and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations would pursue with unrelenting fervour. Throughout the night, law enforcement in the area had been on the lookout for Denise. Pickup trucks fitting the McAnally's description had been stopped and checked, and isolated areas had been searched. The next morning, the search for Denise Haraway continued. Pontotoc County was divided into sections, and volunteers were given areas to comb through. All members of the Ada Police Department, Highway Patrol, and the Sheriff's Department were on duty. The investigation into the suspected abduction was headed by Captain Dennis Smith from the Ada Police Department and Agent Gary Rogers from the OSBI. Within hours of Denise Haraway's disappearance, law enforcement had created a theory based around the two men at JP's. The idea that the two men seen playing pool at JP's had absolutely nothing to do with what happened to Denise did not seem to be a possibility as far as law enforcement were concerned. By the end of April, Karen Wise's assisted composites of the two men at JP's had been made public. People were calling police with the names of men in town who they felt matched those in the police sketches. Two names stood out. The reason that they stood out was that they were both called in around 30 times each. Those two names were Tommy Ward and Billy Charlie. Both men were asked to come in and talk to police and both men complied. Billy Charlie brought along his parents. They were his alibi. According to Billy, he had spent the evening of Saturday the 28th of April at home with his mum and dad. His parents verified this, and their word was enough to assuage law enforcement's interest in Billy Charlie. Tommy Ward also came in for questioning, and police noted that his hair was much shorter than the blonde man in the composite. They also saw that whoever had cut Tommy's hair had done a rough job of it. Police took photos of his hair to document this. Tommy told police that on the 28th of April, he had been fishing with his friend Carl Fontenot. After that, the two of them had attended a party at another friend's house. When the party wound up at 4am, Tommy said that he went home. The funny thing was that Billy Charlie and Tommy Ward were both being compared to the same man in the composite drawing. When compared to one another... Billy and Tommy weren't exactly lookalikes, yet there was something in that composite drawing that could make it resemble both Tommy and Billy and quite a few other men in and around the Ada area. 
although both men had their names called in around 30 times each. Police did not take down the individual names of the callers. This meant that one person with a grudge, or an invested interest in the case, could have effectively called police multiple times to report the same man. When we look at law enforcement's JP theory, the problem with it boils down to basic mathematics. The Timmons brothers and their uncle Gene Walshall only saw one man escorting the woman from McAnally's. They also said that they did not see a second man in the pickup truck as it left the store car park. If the police theory was accurate, then where was the second man? If the two men in JP's had driven down the road and abducted Denise, where did that second man go? Was this mystery man estimated to be around six foot to six foot two, hiding out of sight in the truck while he waited for his blonde friend to go into McAnally's and kidnap Denise? Or is it possible that the two men playing pool at JP's had actually driven past McAnally's and headed back into town, whereabouts unknown, and that the person who abducted Denise Haraway was somebody else completely, somebody else who was acting alone? The description of the pickup truck was another problem. The only factor that the witnesses seemed to agree on was that the truck was covered in primer and that it was somewhere in the vicinity of a 1970s model, probably a Chevrolet. The truck description given by Jack Pascal and Karen Wise differed, as did the truck description of the three eyewitnesses at McAnally's. Perhaps one of these five people was spot on with their description, but how could police determine which person that was? A newspaper article written within three days of Denise Haraway's abduction stated that Denise Haraway got into an early 1970s Chevrolet pickup truck with grey primer and that the truck's back tyres were larger than its front tyres. The article mentioned that a witness had seen three people walking closely together and that one of the men had his hand on Miss Haraway's back. In the same article, a $5,000 reward from the OSBI and a $1,000 reward put up by the McAnally's was mentioned. The reward money would be given for information relating to Denise Haraway's disappearance. The article shows that early on, the story of the men at JP's was starting to merge with the scene at McAnally's and create inaccuracies. Jean Walshall and Lenny and David Timmons only saw one man with the woman. The description of the large back tyres can be linked back to the JP truck description, not the McAnally truck description. In another article, Denise Haraway's mother-in-law, Betty, appealed for information on what had happened to her daughter-in-law. Interestingly, Betty also was quoted as saying, There were times when she was uneasy about working there, but I don't think there were any incidents. It was just a nagging worry until she was safely home. The same article mentioned the disappearance of Paddy Hamilton from Seminole the year before and how the OSBI were looking into a connection between the two very similar disappearances. A description of the two men at JP's was also given in this article, along with a comment that the men were wanted for questioning by the FBI, the OSBI, and by Ada Law Enforcement. Why was Denise worried about working at McAnally's? Worried enough that her mother-in-law mentioned it to a reporter after her disappearance? And would the OSBI thoroughly explore the link between Denise Haraway's disappearance and the extremely similar Patty Hamilton disappearance? 
the circumstances seemed eerily familiar. Two college-age girls were seemingly abducted from convenience stores, where they were the lone workers. Both disappearances occurred in the month of April. In each case, the women's cars and personal belongings were left behind. Both women had issues with their jobs. In both cases, the cash registers were left open and empty, and small amounts of cash were taken, while larger amounts of cash remained untouched. There was no sign of a disturbance at either scene. Denise and Patty had been talking to loved ones on the phone during their shifts, with no mention of any trouble. In the Seminole case, two open cans of soft drink were left behind on the counter, and at McAnally's there was that open can of beer and the still-burning cigarette. On the surface, the biggest differences in the cases seemed to be that Patty disappeared in the early morning hours, while Denise disappeared at around 8.30 at night. And of course, in Denise's case, there were witnesses. On the 2nd of October, five months after Denise went missing, a man named Jeff Miller came to speak to police. Jeff had some information which he felt might help in the Haraway investigation. Jeff Miller told police the two women with whom he was acquainted had told him a story. Miller said that on the day of April the 28th, 1984, there had been a party at the Blue River. Tommy Ward had been at that party. When the partygoers were running low on alcohol, Tommy Ward raised his hand to go and buy more. Tommy left the party in his friend Jeanette Roberts' pickup truck, and he was gone for a long time. When he finally returned to the party, Tommy was crying and he was extremely agitated. He told people that he had kidnapped a girl in town, and now he was feeling really bad about it. Detectives attempted to contact the two women to corroborate Miller's story, but the women had left town. If law enforcement wanted to dot all of their I's and cross all of their T's, then they had their work cut out for them in this instance. One needs to wonder why a presumably intoxicated Tommy Ward would offer to drive the 80-kilometre round trip to Ada when he could have purchased the alcohol in another store along the way. We also need to ask how this fits with the JP theory. Jeff Miller's story, combined with law enforcement's theory, would mean that Tommy Ward went to JP's. There, he met a friend or acquaintance with whom he played pool for 90 minutes. During that time, the two men hatched a plot to rob and kidnap a convenience store attendant. They then drove to McAnally's and committed their crime. After doing all of this, Tommy then drove back out to the party where he confessed to random partygoers. Jeff Miller wasn't at this hypothetical party, and the information that he was relaying was effectively hearsay. If the story was true, why did these two women not go to law enforcement themselves? Why did they wait five months to share their story? Where were all of the witnesses who had seen a distressed Tommy Ward at the party? Where were all of the witnesses to confirm that there had been a party at the Blue River that day? And why didn't Jeanette Roberts' pickup truck become a key piece of evidence? Later on, the two women who allegedly told the story to Jeff Miller did speak to the police. They said that they had never told Jeff Miller that story, never attended that party, and that they had never seen Tommy Ward confess to hurting a woman. It didn't matter. Soon enough, law enforcement would have their man or close enough. Thanks to Jeff Miller's story, 
Tommy Ward was once again on law enforcement's radar. Tommy was living in Norman by this stage, 70 miles northwest of Ada. He was living with Mike and Jeanette Roberts, and he and Mike were working for a siding business. On Friday the 12th of October 1984, detectives contacted Tommy in Norman. They drove out and conducted a two-hour interview, where Tommy denied having any involvement in Denise Haraway's disappearance. Detectives asked Tommy what he had been doing on the 28th of April. Tommy told them that he had been with his brother-in-law, Robert Cavins. They had been working on the plumbing in the family home. Tommy then got ready to attend a party. The keg party was being held next door to Mike and Jeanette Roberts' house. Detectives questioned Tommy about his change of story. In his May interview, Tommy had told detectives that he had been fishing with his friend, Carl Fontenot, on Saturday the 28th. Tommy explained that back in May, he had gotten his days mixed up. He and Carl had been fishing on Friday the 27th and the keg party had been on the 28th. The detectives then insisted that Tommy Ward had been at the party at the Blue River on Saturday the 28th. Tommy denied this. He explained that there had been a party at the Blue River, but that the party had been on Sunday the 29th, not Saturday the 28th. Detectives wanted to make Tommy Ward's timeline fit with Jeff Miller's story. They explained to Tommy that his friend, Carl Fontenot, had given a statement. In the statement, Carl had confirmed that they were both at the Blue River party on Saturday the 28th and that he and Tommy had borrowed Jeanette Roberts' pickup truck. Tommy was perplexed. He knew that he wouldn't have driven all the way to town to buy alcohol. Tommy didn't know it at the time, but Carl had not made a statement to the police. Detectives were lying and using this to pressure Tommy into agreeing with their version of events. Detectives were getting nowhere fast. When Tommy Ward kept refuting their timeline of events, the detectives turned the questioning to Denise Haraway. Do you know that girl? Did you kill that girl? On and on the questions went. And over and over, Tommy Ward denied having any knowledge of or any involvement in the crime. Detectives then asked Tommy if he would take a lie detector test. Believing that he had nothing to hide and wanting to get law enforcement off his back, Tommy agreed to take the polygraph exam. Tommy was troubled. After the composite pictures had been released to the public, he had been asked by multiple people in Ada if he was involved. It had unnerved him, and he couldn't see a resemblance between himself and the man in the composite. Tommy was also disturbed by what detectives had said to him. They had told him to visualise the scene. Picture Denise Haraway being walked out of the convenience store. Picture her being pushed into the pickup truck and driven out to a remote area. Do you think she screamed Tommy? Do you think she tried to run? As it would with most people, this imagery played on Tommy's mind. For almost a week, he was left to worry about his impending meeting with the OSBI. Six days and nights to think about what may have happened to Denise Haraway. That is the end of part one. Thank you so much for listening. Parts two and three will be up in the next week. As usual, you can find all of my resources in my show notes. And if you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help me out, then go ahead and leave a review on whichever podcasting platform you are listening on. 
Thank you again. Have a wonderful day. Take care and I will see you next time.